0: Hello and welcome to The Bunker, your need to know on news and politics, seven days a week. I'm Seth Tevil. What the hell? Those are the words of one parliamentary correspondent when David Cameron got out of his car in Downing Street on Monday to be announced as our new Foreign Secretary, seven years after he resigned as Prime Minister. These sorts of political comebacks are very rare, but not unheard of. And we love nothing more than an emergency podcast to bring a bit of perspective. So here to discuss political comebacks is one of the most astute observers of British politics, Podmasters' is very own Steve Richards from the Rock and Roll Politics Podcast. Hello, Steve. Hi, how are you? Well, thanks. How are you catching up with all of this? I mean, taking it all in.
1: Yeah, it, politics is always fascinating. But there are days and weeks where so much happens. It's really useful to be able to step back and contextualized to kind of make sense of it all.
0: Yeah, I mean, for for David Cameron in particular, just starting in the here and now, how much of a turnaround is this from 2016 resigning in disgrace after unexpectedly losing a referendum on a major foreign policy issue that he expected to win? And now he's our foreign secretary.
1: Yeah, it's huge. And in that sense, though, we're going to talk about other comebacks. It's very unusual because there are many living prime ministers now because people become prime minister aged about 12. So when they retire, they've saw what years of life left ahead of them. And of all of them, Cameron had kept the lowest profile in terms of political activity he became famous again for other activities, business activities, notoriously. But in terms of politics, he's done virtually nothing since resigning in the most humiliating of circumstances, as you say, losing a referendum on Brexit. And so to come back to the heart of politics so suddenly And unexpectedly, having been silent on politics is one of the many extraordinary elements to this saga.
0: I wonder how much of a temptation there's been for prime ministers in the past, or other ex-prime ministers, to be backseat drivers. I mean, certainly when they've done so, people like Margaret Thatcher come to mind, it's tended to be picking and choosing one or two issues very, very carefully and very publicly making statements on it, rather than joining the government.
1: Yeah, uh, that is a much more common route. And again, Cameron didn't follow that. He hasn't been a backseat driver. He hasn't commented on politics at all since he left. The Thatcher route is far more common. We're seeing it at the moment with Keir Starmer. Tony Blair has become quite an active backseat driver, and to some extent, so has Gordon Brown. And that's much more common. Prime ministers are restless. Thatcher obviously uh, was uh, deposed in dramatic circumstances, which he never got over, and was restless and angry with her successor, who she had originally backed, and caused a huge amount of trouble trying to influence major, she chose Europe as her big issue. Blair and Brown are choosing a whole range of issues to backseat drive Keir Starmer. Um, So that is a much more common route for prime ministers. It's very interesting when they're prime minister. They insist that when they go, they will not do it. It's a bit humiliating for them to seek to come back or to be a backseat driver. I remember Tony Blair saying to me when he was in number 10, he said, no, You know, when I leave, I leave, right? And far from it. He's still trying to influence events and the Labour Party. Now, Cameron's is quite unusual to go and then suddenly to be brought back at the heart of a deeply troubled government. So
0: how rare is it for a comeback of this nature to happen? I mean, can we talk through some of the previous examples, for instance?
1: Yeah, I mean, on this scale, frankly, very rare. I mean, there's a technical similarity in that um, Ted Heath, when he became prime minister in 1970, made Alec Douglas Hume foreign secretary when he had been prime minister. Heath mm. replaced him actually. But there are more differences than similarities in the sense that Heath made that appointment at the height of his power. He had just won an election unexpectedly. He could do what he wanted at that point, and he chose to do it. And it was a very, one of the few kind of stable elements of the Heath government was that relationship. This is very different in that Sunak, has brought Cameron back at the end of an electoral cycle when he's in a weak position and when he clearly hopes in some way or another that this will strengthen his position. But there isn't anything – people made the comparison with Gordon Brown bringing Peter Mandelson back. But again, the differences are more marked in a way. It was a dramatic comeback for Peter Mandelson. But more because – Brown and Mandelson had so spectacularly fallen out for Mm. many years, and that's what made it so dramatic. But there was a much neater symmetry to the return of Mandelson.
0: And while Mandelson's influence was very great in the early Blair years, he was only actually a middling-ranking cabinet minister initially the first time around. If anything, he was brought back in a much more senior capacity by Gordon
1: Brown. Yeah, that's one of the many differences. And he had been sacked twice uh, by his close friend Blair. And then he came back as deputy prime minister. But it made sense for Brown to do that in a very clear way. Brown was being subjected to endless attempts to remove him by the more ardent Blairites. And therefore, for Brown to choose the ardent Blairite's ultimate hero Mm. and personification of Blairite worship, Peter Mandelson, was very smart. The symmetry is not as neat with the appointment of Cameron because, you know, Sunak is in trouble on lots of different fronts, but one of the noisiest and vivid fronts is the sort of nationalist right, the hard Brexit right of his party. Mm. It's ironic because he is a hard Brexiteer, Sunak. But bringing back Cameron, far from appeasing that noisy wing, has made them noisier. You're right that the case of Alec Douglas Hume being brought
0: back by Ted Heath is really the last case like this is over 50 years ago. And before that, I think you, you basically have to go back over a century, you'd go back to Arthur Balfour, who was prime minister in the 1900s, being brought back as foreign secretary in the 1910s. And he ends up being quite a consequential foreign secretary. And before that, you then need to go back to the 1850s to look at Lord John Russell who introduced the Great Reform Act um, being brought back as a foreign secretary. So th- this is an incredibly rare thing.
1: It is really rare. And again, with all those examples, in a way it wasn't so dramatic because none of them had left politics in the yep. way Cameron had left politics. He really had, as a conscious decision, disappeared. Mm-hmm. And so, This is really dramatic, and although technically prime uh, ministers have come back to be foreign secretaries, this is really unusual. This case, and there's a question about this being really right at the tail end of the parliament, because at least with Arthur Balfour,
0: you know, he he actually was able to uh, pass some quite substantial things as far as I I mean, it was during World War One, for goodness sake. So there was a lot of scope to get things done, whereas. There's probably about a year left of this parliament, possibly slightly
1: more, possibly less. It's questionable how much he'll actually be able to do. Very little, I suspect. My guess is Sunak must have assured him that he had no intention of going to call an election in May, because then it really would be futile and silly. Because if he was planning to go in May, Certainly by March, we would be in election fever and Cameron in the House of Lords would not be standing for election. So he would have had relevance and centrality for weeks, really. So my guess is he said to Cameron, look, this is going to go on for at least a year. And in a year, you can help a lot with all these international crises. And my guess is also to put the case for the government in the media and, and in other places. So I think it gives us some guidance about the election. It's still some way off, or else Cameron wouldn't have taken it. But you're right, with all the others, again, they had more time in Alec Douglas Hume at the beginning of a parliament. That parliament lasted under three and a half years, but no one knew that at that time. And so they had space to make an impact. It was very narrow with Cameron.
0: Tony Blair was slightly notorious for near-constant reshuffles, and so he sacked a lot of ministers in his time. And he says in his memoirs that the single job that was most difficult to sack anyone from was foreign secretary. No one who was foreign secretary ever wanted to be moved on. And I mentioned that because I, I wonder if there's something about the foreign office that's particularly appealing for an ex prime minister to make a comeback. You know, if you're going to be in a subordinate capacity to somebody else as prime minister, that's the one job that has lots of interesting travel. You get to be a statesman on the world stage again. Is there something about that job that's particularly unusual in that way?
1: Absolutely. I don't think it's a coincidence at all that when these kind of comebacks have happened, it's to the Foreign Office, usually. Not with Peter Madison, but he hadn't been Prime Minister. And William Hague wrote about this in The Times this week, and William Hague has clearly been a mediator of sorts in getting Cameron back. Haig said that when he was foreign secretary, Cameron used to sometimes come over to his office in the foreign office. And Cameron was taken aback by how grand and palatial Haig's office was compared with his <laughs> pokey room in number 10. And, and you can see why if prime ministers are going to come back, it's in the foreign office, slightly detached from the rest of government activity very grand, and as you say, a lot of foreign travel. There is one, I think, problem with this in the current era, and that is prime ministers. I don't think that applies to Sunak necessarily, but on the whole, prime ministers show a lot of interest in foreign policy as they settle into number 10. Look at Blair. To some extent, Cameron became dominant in foreign policy, and the foreign secretaries more subservient. Now, Sunak has got so much on his plate in terms of domestic policy, I don't think that will apply. But I think that is an issue in the modern era about comebacks by prime ministers into the foreign office. But other than that, you can see why that's the only office which tempts them.
0: Is there some sort of general rule about comebacks being likely to be successful or not? I mean, I'm reminded of when um, Roy Jenkins was asked back to the Home Office in 1974, and he'd already been a very successful Home Secretary in the 60s. And uh, he said, well, I didn't like the idea of what he called a réchauffé, of my old job. In the end, he, he ended up actually doing a few things, like the, um, the Equal Pay Act, most notably, although even then, that's a piece of legislation that was you know, widely flouted and being worked around for decades thereafter it's really quite tough if you've been successful, especially, or unsuccessful, to have a a second
1: crack at it. Absolutely. Because on one level, the spell has been broken by definition. If you have left the scene, although, of course, Roy Jenkins hadn't left the political scene, but his second coming to the Home Office was not as vividly successful as the first when he was that great reforming Home Secretary of the late 60s. But politics depends on leaders or prominent ministers casting a spell over us all, that they are mighty and have something special. And when they step back through defeat or through humiliation, the spell goes we think oh yeah well they were useless actually they weren't very good and so when they come back they never recreate this initial spell so Cameron who wasn't one of the great political artists but nonetheless gave the impression to some that he was a dynamic modernizing leader of his party now comes back in the context of having had to go the day after he lost the Brexit referendum. And so these comebacks are tricky, especially when you have fallen from the highest level. You never cast the spell again in the same way. I also wonder about the career of Winston Churchill
0: and how much it proves or disproves that as an exception, because he had a long ministerial career, I mean, between 1905 and 1955 intermittently, and he has long spells out of office. I mean, he's a minister in the 1910s, arguably with quite a successful record in some things at least, but he resigns in disgrace over the Dardanelles. He's back as chancellor in the 20s, and essentially in disgrace over the gold standard and exacerbating the economic crisis, Um, he doesn't have a good record when he becomes prime minister in World War II. He's he's somebody who's very much seen as there has been. And even if you accept that he did have great success as a war leader, he then comes back for another term as prime minister in the 1950s. And uh, I mean, for reasons of illness, as much as anything else is not considered to be an effective prime minister then
1: yeah I mean, he is the ultimate comeback kid. I think was it Clinton who called himself the comeback kid anyway. Churchill is the example of someone who kept on coming back. He changed party sometimes to do it. Mm-hmm. He, he didn't call it coming back. He said re-ratting. I keep, um, re-ratting again. But I think the war was the key factor in the end of the ultimate come back. In other words, if there had been no second world war, I wonder whether Churchill would have languished. Languish is the wrong word. He was a very dominant backbencher in the 1930s, but he, wa- he was a backbencher, of course, famously arguing against Chamberlain's foreign policy. I wonder whether he would have ever got that position of prime minister
0: yeah he kept losing votes there's the thing
1: yeah (laughs) it was the unique circumstances of the war and then but but it is fascinating that having been slaughtered in the 1945 election on a scale which i think in the modern era would have made it almost impossible to come back he came back again six years later very old quite ill but stayed on to the great frustration of Eden. who wanted to take over. So he is an interesting example that I think kind of transcends the normal rules of politics in his capacity to keep going, keep surprising, to keep on recasting the spell that I mentioned earlier on. But I think the war was the context that made that ultimately possible.
0: I wonder if it's worth dividing up comebacks between when a party's just been out of power and they're coming back again. Roy Jenkins is a case of that. Harold uh, Wilson, indeed. And then these instances where a party has been continuously in power and they're bringing someone back. I mean, someone like um, Michael Heseltine comes to mind. You know, He'd been a, a middle ranking minister under Margaret Thatcher as, as cabinet minister. And he's brought back by John Major, firstly as environment secretary and ultimately as deputy prime minister. And the party's continuously been in power during that time.
1: Yeah. And that was a really interesting case because Heseltine's comeback in uh, the autumn of 1990 under John Major was extraordinary, really, because I think it meant that Thatcher became this backseat driver. She, the first thing that Major did that she didn't forgive was to put Michael Heseltine in charge of what she had described as the flagship of her third term in office. It was known as the poll tax, uh, a local tax that had become incredibly unpopular. And Heseltine had always opposed it. So his comeback, although he never failed in his hope to replace Thatcher, he certainly replaced Thatcher's key policy of that period. He came back as environment secretary. But he was very important to uh, Major. And although Major never fully trusted him, always wondered whether Heseltai would make a bid for the top job again. As you say, he made him deputy. And so his comeback led to a, a rise to close to the top. But that's not ever what he anticipated or dared to hope his comeback would be. He hoped he would come back as prime minister, but that that didn't happen. There was an important, significant comeback, Kesseltines, and a constructive one. He he had an impact on policy and helped Major, and arguably helped towards the 1992 election victory of the Tories. Uh, but it wasn't glamorous. It always felt slightly awkward and tense. And a lot of party members didn't trust him, saw him as the figure who had brought down their heroine. Uh, it, it was a, it was a interesting, discordant comeback. The
0: French President Valéry Giscard d'Estaing in the late 70s hung around in French politics for decades afterwards, and he had a nickname, The X. I'm wondering how difficult is it for, particularly for an incumbent prime minister, to have The X hanging around?
1: Yeah, well, very tricky, but it's it's a really interesting comparison. You see, in French politics, in American politics, to some extent, I think the scope to come back or hang around when you've fallen is, is much higher because you're there as an individual. I think these comebacks in the context of our party-based system are tricky and rarely work in the way that the person coming back or the agent of the comeback, in this case, Sunak is the agent of the comeback, mm. in a way that they hope. It will turn out to be whereas in presidential politics you can disappear for a bit i mean macron's an interesting example he was part of the a party and then stood for a a president basically on a ticket of himself really and i think it's much easier in presidential politics to plot a comeback look at trump in america now of course I, i know he's part of the republican party but that in a way is secondary to him as an individual And I think the presidential, if he wins next time, Trump, it will be one of the most astonishing comebacks in the Western world. But it's more possible when you basically represent yourself than when you're part of a party-based system. That's a really interesting
0: comparison, because if I think of another major comeback in US politics, it's Richard Nixon, who'd been vice president for eight years. He'd stood for president and been defeated. He then stood for governor in what was meant to be a comeback, and he was defeated again. And you know, eight years after his first defeat, he ends up being elected president. And the the big thing that he had to contend with was the label of being a loser. And he did that partly because of the state of Republican politics in the late 1960s. There just weren't that many serious opponents. But this focus on being a winner is quite a short-termist focus in a US context, you know, people having short memories. And so if you win a streak of victories very, very quickly, it's much easier, surely, in the US to erase memories than in the UK, possibly with the parliamentary system. Although I suppose with the entry via the House of Lords, David Cameron's managed to bypass elections entirely on
1: that. Yeah. Well, if you can transcend or avoid the electorate, you can sort of do what you want on one level. And that, of course, is what happens when someone's put in the House of Lords. But I think what is difficult to erase in terms of political memory is the memory of a party. So, for example, Heseltine, they could not forgive his successful attempt to remove Thatcher. He didn't win the election, but he killed her off. And there are many other examples of that. We're seeing that with the comeback of Cameron, actually. Look at where the discontent is most intense, within parts of his party who are uneasy about what this represents. Now, if he was floating around as an individual in a presidential system, all he would have to be bothered about is the memory of voters. Now, I think A, they that is a less intense relationship, the voters' memory with the past in politics, compared with active party members. And B, I think the scope for reinvention is greater. Whereas in party politics, you have to partly define yourself by where you stand within a party. And so comebacks, I, I think you're absolutely right that that a Nixon figure. Or any of these presidents who have somehow come across a way of resurrecting themselves would have found it far more challenging in a party system.
0: Mm. And one practical difficulty, if you are coming back after being completely out of politics for a while or or even semi-detached, is... The difficulty of your personal financial interests, your business interests, that kind of thing. I mean, for example, even when Harold Wilson came back in 1974, there were questions about how he'd managed to pay for a very nice Georgian townhouse on Lord North Street. And that was relatively mild. That was just simply he'd made a lot of money from his memoirs. But um, David Cameron has a rather extreme example of that. There are obviously questions around his lobbying activities for Greensill uh, that have been a result of a parliamentary report. There are also questions, for example, about his lobbying for a Sri Lankan port and questions about the Chinese government's funding that or part of that. How common are these sorts of conflicts of interest difficulties?
1: Increasingly so. I mean, the case of Wilson is very interesting. He was still leader of the opposition between 1970 and 1974. But you're right, his private wealth is exaggeration. He got a lot of money for his memoirs, as you usually say. And in fact, famously, David Dimbleby interviewed him about it on a programme, and Wilson hit the roof and never forgave the BBC. He felt so sensitive about it. Now compare that with what David Cameron's been up to. David Cameron has left politics, as we were discussing earlier, to focus exclusively on kind of business, he's done charity work as well, but a lot of it has been about making money. Now Wilson, as I say, was still leader of the opposition, so apart from anything else, didn't have time to devote to this. And I think in this case, and and in others, say if Tony Blair came back, as I think there was a brief phase where he thought he would like to imagine the media going over what he has been up to financially. And I think one of the things that's going to happen is that people are going to scrutinize Cameron's business interests over the last few years. As we said earlier, prime ministers retire young. Some of them remain politically active in different ways. Some go and pursue financial interests. And and Cameron has done very little politics and a lot of the other. So I think this will become a story, well, certainly the media will investigate.
0: Yes. And and there's a fascinating gray area around here because Cameron did announce that he was quitting with immediate effect from all positions that he's had, which means that by the time he takes up office, or having taken up office, he won't need to declare any of this in the list of ministers' interests. But I think there will be a legitimate public interest in things that he was doing until two days before he was Foreign Secretary, for instance.
1: Yeah, a legitimate public interest, and one that no doubt various uh, newspapers are already uh, looking into. Now, presumably, Sunak must have discussed this with him, and Cameron must have reassured him that they'll find nothing. You know, what was found has been found and examined, and so on. But that is a real risk if you bring back prominent people who have immersed themselves in business in the gap in between. And uh, there are many risks with comebacks, and that's one of them. Well, that's fascinating. Thank you very much, Steve. Seth, so thank
0: you very much. And if you enjoyed listening, Remember that you can get more analysis from Steve on Rock and Roll Politics wherever you get your podcasts. And remember that you can support us on Patreon from just £3 a month. You'll be supporting our ever-expanding catalogue of shows like The Bunker and Oh God What Now and our ability to turn on a sixpence and do specials like this. Thanks for listening. Until next time. John O'Farrell
1: and me Angela Barnes wherever
0: you get your podcasts
1: The Bunker Daily was written and presented by Seth Tabor The producers were Eliza Davis-Beard and Chris Jones and the audio producer was me Jade Bailey The managing editor is Jacob Jarvis and the group editor is Andrew Harrison. With music by Kenny Dickinson and artwork by Jim Parrott, The Bunker is a Podmasters production.